Welcome to CryoTalk, a bite-sized bio-podcast sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Featuring conversations between your host, Ava Amson, and experts in the field of cryo-electron microscopy. Today on CryoTalk, we are joined by Brett Friedenthal, Associate Professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Kansas Medical Center. He talks about his research on DNA damage and why large shared cryo-EM facilities are indispensable. There's lots of schools and lots of people that don't have access to cryo-EM and need that access, and they need that access without the burden of cost. He also shares why he enjoys mentoring students. We all think that the experiments we do and the science that we do is the most important part of the job, but I actually think it's the people. And his favorite barbecue recipes. It's called a, it's called a copa, which is basically, it's like a pork shoulder. And Ooh. so we smoke that and do sort of pulled pork and have some friends over them. All in this episode of CryoTalk. Hi, and welcome to CryoTalk. I'm Ava Amson, and I'm here today with Brett Friedenthal. Brett is Associate Professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Kansas Medical Center. His research group studies the connection between DNA damage and human health. Hi, Brett. How are you today? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I know you're in Kansas now, but can you tell us a little bit about how you got there and what you've been doing so far with your career? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, as you said, we're in at the uh, University of Kansas Medical Center here in Kansas City. And so um, it's like many, I guess, academics. We took a long journey to get here. So I was born and raised in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, and then when I turned 18, I headed to the neighboring state of Colorado, where I uh, got my undergrad degree in the Department of Biochemistry at Colorado State University. Um, then after that, was weighing whether or not to do med school or graduate school, like many of us do, and ultimately decided graduate school was a better approach for me and transitioned to the University of Iowa, uh, where I got my PhD in the lab of Dr. Todd Washington. And that was really the first place I started understanding the importance of DNA damage and sort of the connection to human health. Um, and so then once I completed my PhD, I pushed even further east out to the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina, and so I did my postdoc there with uh, Dr. Sam Wilson and studied basic scission repair and really got into turning out lots of different crystal structures and really focused on X-ray crystallography during that phase of my career. Um, And then finally, uh, we pushed back to the University of Kansas where me and my wife uh, moved here, I guess it would be end of 2015, um, which seems like a a short amount of time, but actually on the calendar, it's quite a while. Um, mm-hmm. So when we pushed back to the University of Kansas, we uh, have two little boys. Uh, we came here and we started raising our family and opened the lab and really enjoyed it here. Cool. Sounds like you've been all over the U.S. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we have. So, yeah, it's been nice now being in the center of the country because we can kind of fly around and see parents yeah. a little easier. Yeah, that's good. And uh, I, I find it interesting that you're working on the link between DNA damage and human health, because I think for many of us, that's something we, we know is obviously there is a connection. Mm-hmm. But at what point did you realize that there were still many unanswered questions and lots of work to be done? Yeah, I guess I guess for me, I've always um, part of the frustration came about early in my graduate career where uh, we would study context of DNA damage and DNA repair, but we really didn't seem to understand any of the mechanistic details about them. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work was being driven by industry and still remains driven by industry in terms of developing drugs with beneficial human health impacts, but we don't always understand how those drugs work and how the proteins that we're targeting actually function. And so I think 
that's been a major driver of my career is actually understanding the mechanistic details of these proteins and how they interact with DNA to protect the genome or how they um, actually can drive evolution of just a bit by promoting more and more mutations. And so that's always been fascinating to me. And, and just a reductionist approach to, I feel like all things funnel back to our genome. Um, I'm a little biased in that capacity, but mm-hmm. um, I really feel, so it's always been interesting to me. Um, and then I think as scientists, we always have to do something that benefits the larger society as a whole. And so I think keeping human health in the background, um, I would say that we are a basic research or fundamental research lab um, at our core. Um, and that's kind of the, the goal is that we're going to find out how these enzymes work or how these proteins work, and then hopefully provide a better foundation for industry and people to develop drugs. And so what what, what kind of research projects have you are going on at the moment in your group? Yeah. Yeah. So at the moment, one of the big pushes that's related to cryo-EM is, is we're trying to understand how um, DNA repair factors can go and work within a chromatized environment. And so what does that mean? So what that means for us is that we're actually using cryo-EM to look at nucleosome core particles and how DNA uh, that's damaged can subsequently be identified and repaired in the context of a nucleosome core particle. And why this is important is as a nucleosome core particle is uh, has a protein components referred to as histones, and in order for pro, in order for the DNA repair factors to find the damage and actually engage the damage, they sort of go at this what um, a talented postdoc in my lab terms as a tug of war, um, and so they're kind of fighting this nucleosome core particle to get at the DNA damage and get it away from the protein so that they can start to actually repair. And by repairing it, they need to subsequently remove the damage base and put in a new re- new base and subsequently ligate it. And so we're using cryo-EM to actually understand that at relatively the atomic level, I would say. And why did you choose cryo-EM for that particular project? What makes it so useful? Yeah, yeah. So I think cryo-EM is really useful for that because the nucleosome core particles are very, very amenable to that. And so we use them almost as a, they're a biologically relevant scaffold, but they're really also a nice scaffold. They form nice little circles. You can nicely see on the grids. The, st- the conditions are fairly well established. And really the hard part then becomes forming complexes between the nucleosome core particle and the different DNA repair proteins. And so that takes a lot of troubleshooting and a lot of hard work, but um, cryoEM is really the most amenable approach to look at that. And then we complement that with X-ray crystal structures that are a much higher resolution of these repair proteins bound to just naked DNA, so no nucleosome bound mm. at all. And so we can kind of complement the two approaches to get a better sense of how it works as a whole. Mm. Yeah, so I, I saw in your, your research website that you use like many different techniques to approach any individual problem that you're looking at. Yeah. It's a good approach. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, it seems like you have to do a little bit of everything nowadays mm. to kind of get the full <laughs> picture. And for, for cryo-EM, do you have a local machine or facility that you use? Yeah, so um, actually exciting news here, which I think is kind of what brought us here, is that we're going to be installing or opening a local um, cryo-EM facility here at the University of Kansas Medical Center. And so that will open May 9th or sometime in the month of May. Um, and so we're getting a glacios with a selectress uh, detector. And so we're pretty excited about this opportunity um, to be able to bring cryo-EM to the state of Kansas because we've really mm. not had that facility at all here. There's something, there's neighboring facilities at Iowa and Missouri, but nothing really in the state of Kansas or local. Mm. So what have you been using until now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> one of the things that kind of happened when I opened my lab was sort of the big cryo-EM revolution happened. So I was an extra crystallographer and the revolution sort of came barreling down the scientific pipeline, if you will. And so we had to find a way to pivot 
to be able to start to utilize cryo-EM. And one of the early frustrations, I would say, from about 2015 till about 2017 for myself was the lack of access, right? It's an incredible technique, but you could never find any access. And so um, I really give the NIH and the federal government a lot of credit for opening and funding national facilities um, and really backing those financially. And so the ones that we've been using is uh, PNCC, um, and that's the Pacific Northwest, I think, Cryo-EM Center. Um, it probably has a bigger acronym for that. Um, but nevertheless, we've been using PNCC, and they have been just an instrumental source for us uh, for both sending samples, figuring, helping troubleshoot samples. Um, we also were able to analyze data there. And so we've been generating the samples here and then subsequently shipping them out to PNCC, and then we'll analyze the data there. Mm -hmm. um, and so that what that was really instrumental for us was just getting our foot in the door and starting to get some momentum behind our projects yeah. and figuring out what would work. And so once that momentum started to pick up, um, we, were, we were able to kind of leverage those results and also leverage the exciting time from sort of the 2018 till now for CryoEM to help convince people um, that we need to have facilities here. And so I think these yeah. national facilities are instrumental in sort of drumming up support, if you will. Mm. Yeah, that's actually my, my next question. Like, do you think that like shared large shared facilities like that um make cryoEM also more accessible to people who are just want to try it out or maybe just use it occasionally? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it parallels what happened back when I was in graduate school with synchrotrons for mm -hmm. extra crystallography. And so I think what it's these national facilities um are just I think one of the biggest things to happen to cryo-EM outside of just sort of the, we all talk about the resolution revolution, but I really think these national facilities are what's important because there's lots of schools and lots of people that don't have access to cryo-EM and need that access. And they need that access without the burden of cost, right? So you have big bills associated with cryo-EM if you go to a private facility or a local facility, whereas the national facilities, you don't have these bills. And so I think it's been important for states like Kansas, where we're referred to as an idea state, a state that doesn't get large amounts of NIH funds. And so um, we're a state where I think smaller schools, as well as even schools like ourselves, can use these national facilities. And my my ultimate hope would be to start to see these national facilities continue, and PNCC is a big advocate of this, but to continue to push into trying to support other states that have really no access to cryo-EM, whether it be a state like my home state, like Wyoming, I'll use it mm -hmm. as an example, um, where it feels like, oh, this is an awesome technique, but I don't even know where to go to do this. And so I think these natural facilities are a key component to that outreach. And also, I think we'll facilitate bringing the cost down, training the next generation of scientists and making it more accessible to everyone um, to where it becomes a tool instead of uh, only the um, wealthy labs could do it. And so I think that's been mm -hmm. a huge push. Yeah, and I credit yeah. the federal government and the National Institute Centers for that. Yeah, definitely a good way for people to, to just get to know it even if not yeah. everyone has a big facility yes um, yeah but you are very exciting to, to get your local facility set up um yeah. do you have any plans for it do you know what you're going to do first yeah well you know hopefully everything goes smooth so right now you know if the first thing we want to do is get the equipment here i think it's <laughs> i don't know if it's formally shipped but it's in the process so you know as as you know with these things it's what you don't know so we're always worried about the things that we don't know but so far um it's going really well and i think some of the first things we're going to do is um have a little symposium where some trainees can give some talks here and try to right now we're doing a seminar series and have had different speakers come through and so um 
I think probably the first thing we'll do is um, open it up to local users as well as anyone that wants to use it. Um, but some of the first projects will probably be scouting out with a handful of labs that are working such things as nucleosomes for us, or there's a proteasome and kind of start to get the workflow up and going. Mm. Um, and we anticipate hopefully starting to get, or I personally anticipate hopefully starting to do a little bit more outreach to the smaller schools um, and maybe try to funnel in some of the undergrads as well. Um, but that is something that's going to be sort of down the line, if you will. So I think the first goal for us is to get it up and going and work out any kinks that there may be, even though Thermo says there'll be none, but you always <laughs> worry a little bit about the unknown. Yeah, get it all working. And then, yes. Yeah, yeah. A, the seminar series sounds interesting as well. I, yeah. I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been nice. We had a recent talk by Greg, by Dr. Lander out here. And so it's been exciting to have the seminar series. We're a medical center. And so there's not mm -hmm. a lot of um, there's not a lot of awareness around structural biology here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the, the seminar series has really had had about 100 people at each seminar. And we've had different folks come out um, and really starting to show enthusiasm for the approach and trying to implement it into their program. Because one of the big things is, is, well, what do I do with this and how do I make it work? They all know it's exciting, but how do they actually implement it? And so we've been working a lot on that. And um, and what's next for your research? <laughs> Anything you're working yeah. on? <laughs> yeah, I would say so next for our research, you know, at this point, we've published a paper. So we work on the base excision repair pathway, which is a, um, a DNA, one of the subsets of the DNA repair pathway. And so we've solved one of the enzymes. I think there's, I would say there's about six or seven enzymes in the pathway, depending on how you define it. Um, and we've solved one of the enzymes bound to its cognate form of DNA damage or its preferred form of DNA damage. And so now what we're trying to do is look at how the other enzymes within that pathway all function. And so mm -hmm. that's been a big push for us cryoam related. You know, we you kind of, you get the system up and going and now you're like, well, what about this enzyme? You know, very classic scientists, right? Let's start working down the pathway. And so I think we're going to start looking at that as well as starting to look at larger complexes. And so I think that's been the big push for us. Um, as always, I think it's cryom's wonderful, but you know, it, it's a slow process in terms of data analysis and working mm -hmm. through that. So um, it'll have, we'll have plenty of years of work left to do on those <laughs> topics. That's good. You won't get bored. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> and, and what do you do when you're not working? Do you have any hobbies? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the the big thing that I do when I'm not working is try to spend time with the family. And uh, I've got two boys that are seven, twin boys that are seven years old. So I spend a lot of time with <laughs> them, uh, one of their soccer games and things. Um, we actually uh, are headed out next week for their spring break on a ski trip. So uh, being from Wyoming, I hunt and fish and um, I guess I technically snowboard, but we refer to it as a ski trip. Um, and so we're taking, we're teaching the kids how to ski. So we're headed out to do that for the next week, um, which should be fun. They're yeah. sort of still adjusting to the fear of the lift, which is always scary at that age, oh, yeah. but they, they seem to be enjoying it. So that's, that's probably kind of the things that I like to do. Try to get outside, um, you know, or, or hang out with friends. Great. It, I love watching little kids ski because it's like they have no fear at all. They just yes. they don't think about falling. They just go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is fun watching them, you know, kind of learn the pie and the fry and everything. Yeah. So it's um, it's they're, they're just budding skiers. <laughs> I guess you don't have very far to fall when you're only little. So. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, it's yeah, not too far at all. I think the, the biggest part is getting them used to the lift. That seems to yeah. be the ongoing challenge. So the, <laughs> But it's also the fun parts. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I've got a, a round of quick fire questions. Yeah, um, yeah. So do you enjoy traveling? I know you've been all oh. over the country. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that's by, by far probably one of my favorite things to do is uh, go on different trips or um, 
we we're hoping to try to get back overseas with the pandemic. It's kind of limited our ability to travel yeah. overseas, but a spot me and my wife are eyeing is trying to get back out to Italy. We went out there, um, I guess it'd be four years ago now. So I'd like to get back out there, but otherwise travel a lot within sort of the North America area, lots of ski resorts, or my wife is much more of a beach person. So we recently were in Florida um, spending some time out on the beach with the kids. And do you like to read? Do you have any book recommendations for us? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, <laughs> unfortunately, I must admit that I am the person that doesn't like to read as much for fun anymore. Um, so, which is a bad and embarrassing thing. And I'm I'm hoping I was talking to my wife about it, trying to get back into reading because it's something I should try to enjoy more. But lately, um, the free time that I've had, I've been doing more kind of house projects. We're renovating our basement. Mm. So I've been spending time doing that. And and I'm convincing myself, so I unfortunately don't have good book recommendations. I should be a better <laughs> scientist on that front. But I think the writing and reading of the the job makes it where when I yeah. go home, I like to do stuff with my hands. And, you do um, enough reading for work. <laughs> yeah, but it is bad. I'm always embarrassed about it. <laughs> um, what What about um, things on screen, films or TV? Oh yeah, so time um, for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, we yeah we do like to do like to watch shows. So I've actually been watching, I guess relevant right now, we've been watching The Last of Us, uh, mm. which is a show on HBO Max right now that we're watching. Um, and so I really enjoy that style, of, that sort of style of show. Um, and so that's been something that we watched actually last night, me and my wife did. And so it's mm. been interesting. I, I sort of like these sort of end of the world things um, in sort of how humanity would deal with that. So I've always found the social dynamics interesting within those films. Mm. Yeah, and there's, there's so many in that genre, and it's, yes, it's, it often feels scarily close to home. But yeah, like, yes. this, that, that could yeah. really happen, and yeah. yes. Yeah. And um, what about? Do you like cooking? Do you do you do that at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, yeah, Ooh. I do like to cook. So being in Kansas City, we're a big barbecue city, and so mm. um, I've get more and more i think uh actually this yesterday it was nice here uh, we sort of had a nice break in the weather and so it's got up into the 70s and so i ended up smoking um uh, what's called a it's called a copa which is basically it's like a pork shoulder and mm. so we smoked that and do sort of pulled pork and had some friends over and so i i really like to grill um i definitely like cooking in the kitchen as well but i much more prefer to be outside on the grill yeah. or <laughs> making hamburgers or steaks or kind of doing the whole barbecue thing which is a big mm. kansas city yeah, and it's uh, it's it's almost spring and summer, so yes. we've got a lot yeah, of grilling that, ahead. <laughs> yeah, we're in that time of year here where it swings, temperature kind of swings from about 30 degrees. So, you know, I think today it'll hit 60, I think tomorrow the high may be 40. Um, that's kind of spring <laughs> in the Midwest where it's just we have these big temperature swings. <laughs> it's hard to prepare for. But yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what about music? Do you listen to music at all? Yeah, yeah. So I guess there's kind of two styles that I would listen to generally. So if I'm working or writing, it tends to be sort of more classical or jazz music to try to keep me focused mm -hmm. on what I'm working on. So that's what I would listen to with that. Um, otherwise, I'm very much a, a 90s kid and grew up listening to 90s hip hop and rap. And so I tend <laughs> to listen to that style. And now I've kind of transitioned a little bit more probably with the kids more into kind of the the pop genre that we'll listen to with them um, or kind of electronic music. So it's kind of a spectrum. We listen to a little <laughs> bit of country, but not a lot. I grew up listening to a lot of country being in Wyoming and so <laughs> kind of shifted away. But um, the 90s sort of rap era had a big influence on my style of music. Yeah, that was a, that was a big era for rap too. So it's... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. It's can't play it around the kids and it's always ages <laughs> quickly, but um, 
we yeah. still listen to it. <laughs> Sounds like you have a lot of different things to listen to. That's fun. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this is a question that I always love asking scientists. Um, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? <laughs> oh, that is a good question. So um, if I wasn't a scientist, I would probably, um, you know, <laughs> not withstanding the financial aspects, but I actually would, I've always thought it would be interesting to open kind of a speakeasy, like a cocktail bar. So I've always mm -hmm. enjoyed the settings of cocktail bars and sort of restaurants like that to where you can get together with sort of other friends and adults and kind of a camaraderie associated with that. So I actually think that probably would be something that I would actually really enjoy doing. I mean, I recognize the challenges of that industry to just mm -hmm. say we would do it. Um, but that's something that I have always, um, always kind of wanted to go and be able to do is uh, go open a nice adult cocktail bar with some sort of food component to it. And it's still kind of sciencey. It's it's yes. making cocktails yeah. always feels like doing a science experiment to me with all yeah. the, the careful measurements and <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's always nice to get together, you know, with friends and mm. chat about things and catch up. So it's always mm -hmm. been something I've thought would be a fun thing to do, being part of the community as well. But leaving the cocktail bar, going back to the lab, yes. um, yeah. do you um, do you enjoy mentoring students? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I would say that it's by far um, the part of the job that I enjoy the most. It's a part mm. of the job that I think is probably the we all think that the experiments we do and the science that we do is the most important part of the job. But I actually think it's the people. Um, and mm. so I by far it, it there's just something about. The, the trainees and the excitement that they have and helping them kind of launch their career. I mean, I think it's, it has its own challenges in terms mm. of, you know, they're only here for a small amount of time and you sort of are like, Oh, and then they sort of launch their own career. And so, you know, the turnover can always be a challenge um, a bit in terms of finding the next generation. But I, the, the mentoring I think is really where the long-term impact of my career will be not another paper. It'll be the people that mm. I interact with. And that's the part I enjoy the most. Um, it's just it's just fun they have such a joy for science and are always you know so excited about it um and so i i've just always enjoyed that aspect and and in your own career um have you had any useful advice from people who mentored you yeah i would say um ooh, you put me on the spot here so <laughs> um i would say you know a handful of advice so one of the ones that i had um, from both of my graduate mentor and then my postdoctoral mentor was to, you know, just keep it simple and remind it for people and, you know, think about the reader instead of the writer, you know, it's a lot more about the reader and keeping it simple, as they mm -hmm. say, simple, stupid, you know, just try to keep mm -hmm. it very understandable. Um, and then one of my uh, postdoctoral mentors always said that, you know, it's very hard to float a battleship in shallow water. And so it's important that you address a topic at a level of depth, and you don't do it very shallowly, and because you need to be able to really get at those topics. And so um, I think understanding something in great detail as opposed to surveying lots of different things um, mm -hmm. was some really good advice. And it's probably reflective of my inherent nature of wanting to jump around and survey lots of different things. And so I think mm -hmm. that was something I always try to keep in mind. Um, hmm. Yeah, that sounds like useful advice. Yeah. I think especially for a field like biochemistry where there's just, there's there's so much to look at and there's yeah. so many pathways that you can go down. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah. It can become overwhelming. I mean, mm -hmm. even with this nucleosome core particle that we're trying to study, it sort of even becomes where do we put the damage within the 147 possible locations? <laughs> you know, how do you pick the right spot? So it can become very daunting. Well, I think we have reached the end of our episode for today. Yeah. Which uh, I've, I've, I hope you, you 
your installation of the new equipment goes well and <laughs> no yeah, startup problems and it sounds really yeah. exciting <laughs> yeah it should go smoothly i think the institution's excited and you know it's just a, it's an exciting time right now i think at yeah. institution they're really investing in basic research and so um it's it's a fun time to be here it's going to be amazing yeah so, yeah thanks for yeah. having me as well yeah thank you so much and that brings us to the end of today's episode and Thanks, everyone, for listening to or watching CryoTalk. Thank you for listening to CryoTalk, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash CryoTalk.